Welcome to Matthew's World of Wine and Drink, an educational podcast helping wine students and wine enthusiasts alike to learn about all the wines of the world. I'm Matthew Gorn, and I'm a WCT certified educator, and in this podcast, I explore different wine regions and different grape varieties, and also interview producers from all around the world to explore the vast world of wine. In this episode, I'm with Brad Hickey of Brash Higgins, who are based in McLaren Vale. Um, he's American, who moved to Australia over 15 years ago and has been making wine in McLaren Vale since then and makes excellent wine. And so in this episode, we discuss McLaren Vale and some of the trends there, the great varieties there, and what McLaren Vale is like. Just to begin, um, I'd like you to introduce yourself and where you're from and what took you to McLaren Vale. I'm uh, Brad Hickey, the winemaker, founder of Brash Higgins Wine Company in McLaren Vale. And I came to Australia from New York City in 2007, uh, essentially for a sabbatical to take a break from working as a wine director and sommelier in Manhattan and was working in New York City for about 10 years prior to Australia, uh, kind of climbing up the the uh, the ladder there to the pointy end of the restaurant scene with uh, David Boulay, um, sort of 2002 to 2006, and then eventually sort of burnt out and wanted to take some time and think about my next move and move to Australia, ostensibly just to work harvest with uh, Chris Ringland, who's was a winemaker, is a winemaker that I was friends with, who was making the wines for Rockford Winery in the Barossa Valley, which is very famous. And Chris had his own label, which is uh, also very famous and one of the most expensive Shirazes in probably in the world. Uh, anyway, so he invited me to work and he was starting a new project in Adelaide area in sort of South Australia. And so I flew down, um, subletted my apartment for what ended up being two years I've subletted it, which is pretty cool. And that gave me some time to to work with those guys and, and get my sort of foot in the door. Um, I'd been to Australia previously on a buying trip in 2004 and really loved McLaren Vale in particular. The contrast to New York City was incredibly refreshing and uh, in the space and the pace and the clean air, you know, obviously. Um, and it was very attractive. And I remember trying to make a note to myself, I'd like to come back here. And then when I was offered that job with Chris, uh, I jumped on it. And sure enough, my life changed completely. As soon as I made the move down here, um, started to kind of get acclimated and then, yeah, started building new networks, new social networks, and eventually ended up staying. And, uh, yeah. And then it was a matter of time until I got involved in winemaking and viticulture, but um, that was the initial uh, leap from Northern Hemisphere to Southern. So in which year did you um, first go to Australia, well, first kind of move to Australia? It was January 2007, so it was the 2007 vintage. Yeah, and again, it was really on a, just on a tourist visa, so I was quite ignorant um, of the laws at the time. In fact, I think it was actually quite innocent more than ignorant. I just assumed that, you know, I could just leave every three months and the Australian custom passport control would be like, you know, as if they were just using a yellow legal pad and a number two pencil, like, you know, goodbye, <laughs> see you later. Uh, and so every three months I would leave and kind of go travel around New Zealand or travel around South Africa or go to Vietnam or try to see some of the 
you know, a bit of the diaspora around Australia. And then eventually they said, uh, yeah, you might want to kind of get a visa. We're not sure what you're doing. And I'm like, oh, so that kind of really altered the sort of playing field for me was I needed to get serious. And I'd been dating somebody at the time who was a wine uh, grape grower and had a, a life in McLaren Vale. And so we decided to partner, go through a partner visa. The Australian government wasn't very interested in having another wine guy. They said they had lots of those. Could I maybe offer something better to the, uh, to the nation? Maybe, you know, something involved with a gig city or uh, something in, you know, brain surgery. I don't know. But uh, uh, so I said, no, maybe I can make one of your citizens happy. And so they, they, they agreed. And so I went, uh, got my passport and everything through a partner visa uh, here. And that actually was really cool. And so that gave me the freedom to, to work and to come and go and, uh, and then, yeah, start to kind of develop what would eventually become the sort of foundation for, for Brash Higgins. It did kind of put the fire under me, though. I think that once I got involved in sort of producing and, and making wines, that I wanted to do something innovative. And and I love that spirit of Australia. And it's a bit like the U.S. You know, I feel like Australia is kind of the new frontier where the U.S. had the West, you know, which was obviously has been settled and developed. But Australia feels like there's still a lot of uh, a lot of pioneer, a lot of sort of um, opportunities to be innovative. Um, and even if you're even if you're just kind of copying or replicating an idea that you've tasted something else or seen something else, it's the playing field is pretty wide open as far as being uh, to explore. And I think that's one of the things for sure that when I first kind of started getting settled in here, I thought, well, this is a pretty massive leap to move all the way from the States to another part of the world. And, you know, maybe I should do something to sort of justify that sort of massive move and try to do something interesting rather than just, you know, make Shiraz and Cabernet. And so that definitely led to, but I can see in Australia has that, I think there's that real, the really pro innovation. And now there's a whole realm of innovation visas and because they're trying to actually bring a lot more forward thinking people into the country too. So you mentioned um, space and pace of Australia. And definitely when I was in Adelaide, there was that nice, slow, relaxed pace, but also traveling across Australia, there is so much space. But talking about McLaren Vale, it feels quite contained, um, just south of Adelaide. And of course, Adelaide suburbs almost encroach on McLaren Vale and did take over other wine regions in the 70s and 80s. So you do have that kind of contrast between the vast space of Australia and then that quite contained wine region. Can you talk a little bit about McLaren Vale and what it's like? Yeah, I was just speaking to a friend of mine, Dudley Brown, who's a winemaker for Inkwell Wines, another expat American. Uh, ironically, we both live on California Road. Dudley's winery and his wife as well, but they're quite um, they're quite pivotal here in the district for a couple of things. And one of the things that he was doing when he was chair of McLaren Vale Grape Wine and Tourism was trying to protect the urban sprawl because these areas were being encroached upon, you know, surely, because it's only 40 minutes from McLaren Vale to Adelaide. So it's it's a fairly quick jump. And over my 10 years or 12 years of living here, I've seen the whole southern region where we live opening up, um, real estate prices skyrocketing. It's, it was only a matter of time till I think I saw it right away, like this is, this is kind of like the equivalent to San Diego to Los Angeles or something like this. These lakeside, these, these Esplanade, these coastal properties are going to get gobbled up. And so, so yeah, so 
Dudley was part of a, a really kind of cool bit of protectionism where he was, you know, he got involved very quickly in, with Parliament and trying to protect these regions from being um, just engulfed. Clearly, if you're coming into a wine region, you want to feel a separation between city and country. So, so that's been kind of good that, that that was put in place. You see cities like Portland have done the same, you know, where they've tried to draw a line around and say, don't go. Let's force all the development closer to the city. McLaren Vale is surrounded by the Adelaide Hills to the east and south. And then it has the, the western boundary is the Gulf of St. Vincent, which is literally only about two miles from our winery and our vineyard. So it's very similar in some ways to the Sonoma Coast in the sense that it's right on the ocean and the ocean influence here is massive. So that deep body of water makes things quite cool here, even if it's hot summer days. So you do feel contained, like there is a behind me and to the north, there's obviously Adelaide, which is kind of the northern boundary. Um, and then to the south and east is the Adelaide Hills, which is obviously another major wine region, which basically contains all of McLaren Vale and the Gulf to the west. So it does feel like you're in a an undulating basin. So you feel like there are parameters, you know, it's not like the great expanse of like the Riverland in Australia, which is a massive bulk wine region which is fairly flat and, you know, it just goes on. It's like seas and seas of vines. So, yeah, so McLarenville has that nice aspect. I think it's easy for people studying to see physically the way that the, um, the landscape sits here. Altitude is not a big factor, but there's probably at least three little regions within the Vale that ripen at different times from areas that are right on the coast called Selix, Selix Hill, Selix Beach, um, and that's where you see more kind of robust red wine grapes, Merved, Shiraz, Cabernet, things in Grenache too, but tend to be more clay soils. And then you see areas a little bit further inland that the grapes will ripen significantly later in most harvests, might be a month later, closer to the Adelaide Hills, which is still McLaren Vale GI, but it's obviously a little bit different. So in the Vale itself, there's probably 17 subregions, which has now been mapped and actually... Um, been slowly developed. There's a really great geology map on the McLaren Vale website, um, which is probably the best wine geology map in the world. Uh, and it took four geologists 20 years to map it by foot, just doing core samples, uh, literally wandering around and doing core samples of the whole region. And so we have this great tool of seeing what the parent rock is beneath the soil. And that's been a really imagine, a really amazing thing for us to have to start talking about the great sites and what's, why and how are these different sites affecting flavor. You know, from Bluet Springs, which is a sandy stretch, which has become quite renowned here. Shiraz growing in the sand or Grenache in the sand is vastly different than growing in heavy clay soils. So we are seeing quite a little bit of movement there, but the region itself is really nicely sort of delineated by those physical boundaries. Probably climate-wise, it's very similar to me to like sort of Tucson or like, or Sicily. It's hot and dry. It's basically two seasons. The winter, which we're coming out of now, is quite wet, very British in some ways because it's dark at four, it's cold. People think Australia is hot year-round. It's kind of, you kind of maybe check it out before you come here and you know in june it's always a bit strange to be from the us and in july it's like really cold here and you're like this is confusing me um uh but yeah essentially it's it's and the, the growing season here from september till april is is usually very arid and very dry um but still kind of 
cool nights. So you get like most of the nights here. Most people don't need air conditioning. You can just get by on the wind or air or ceiling fan because um, it's dry and cool. It drops down under 70 most nights. And then in the days, it could be up to 90. But even then, the heat is dry. So you don't have any real disease pressure with with humidity at all, like versus Chicago, where I grew up, which is kind of nasty in August. You know, this is very dry. It feels very much like North Africa or Sicily or Chateauneuf. And I think that's why we're sort of developing the region with some of those grape varieties as well that do well in the Mediterranean. Everything will get ripe here. I think that's part of the charm. You know, not everything will flourish. Pinot Noir, Nebbiolo, Chardonnay would probably like a cooler, longer growing seasons, but we're noticing that those are not the key grapes that are performing here now. It's a lot of grapes that end in O, right? So it's the Sagrantino, Nero, Montepulciano, Tempranillo, all those kind of sturdy Mediterranean stock is, uh, is starting to really thrive here. Yeah, when I was in McLaren Vale, um, I saw that geology map. They were very proud of it, and it is quite impressive. Yeah, I carry it with me wherever I go. It's always kind of fun. And whatever I, I always have like, you know, my, or my, if I have a distributor or somebody, they're always like the human blackboard who holds it up, you know, so it's usually just a pair of legs and a map. And it's become a bit of a running joke, but it does, it's a really illustrative. It shows people really quickly because not everybody understands Australia where it is at all. It's a really good idea. It just shows people very quickly that it's right on the ocean, which is drastically a huge, massive part of everything here. And then, yeah, it gives you that sense of, where the sand is like that blue at spring stretch is a really magical swath that goes right through and you can really start to understand just how old this region is physically how old those hills are over two billion years old you know where we're planting grapes was underwater a few million years ago so that sort of time frame is is pretty amazing and it also explains how these soils here are very sort of nutrient deprived you know so there's sand there's there's clay, there's quartz, granite, there's all sorts of different stuff, but there's very little like nitrogen in the soil. So it's all good for grape growing and olives and almonds and things you'd see in Sicily, you know, so. Yeah, the first time I went to McLaren Vale, I was in Adelaide and we drove down from Adelaide into the valley and you just realized that it is a valley, that it, but it is an unusual valley because there's a sea on one side, there's mountains on the other. Um, it just feels quite distinct. And then you learn about the soils, you learn about the wines, and you realize that it is this kind of enclosed space. And also last this year when I was in, I went to Adelaide Hills as well and went wine tasting there. And that's so close to McLaren Vale. And yet everything is completely different. Yeah, you're about 300 to 600 meters higher and it becomes pine forests and you start seeing like European tree varieties and frost becomes a lot bigger factor there and it's cooler and it's cloudy and there's fog and it's yeah so it's drastically different right in our own doorstep so it's cool to have both of those and a lot of winemakers go back and forth you know i don't think we have the same sort of sectarian qualities that you may have had in the past where uh quite a lot of mclaren vale based wineries will use adelaide hills fruit and vice versa the grenache here is world famous now and so most hills producers will come down and and try to get some Grenache off of the sand or something like that. And then when they scamper back up to the hills, you know, it's like this kind of game of Game of Thrones thing, the, the hills people and the basin dwellers. But but a lot of us do kind of cross over now because it is it's fascinating to be able to say, hey, well, I'd love to play with Pinot Meunier, you know, but it's going to probably be maybe a little bit too robust down here. And then there are growers and winemakers who want to work with our Cinso. 
uh, you know, still making really light, pretty wines. That's a lot of us are hunting for that sort of ethereal red uh, grape. And those are the ones that are really people are focusing on outside of Pinot, Pinot Noir, which is obviously, you know, you're dealing then with Burgundy and California and some, not a lot of people are specializing in Cinso, but it's showing a lot of promise, you know? So, yeah, so we do cross over and the Barossa Valley is a little bit further away. And I think then it just becomes more logistics of how far do you want to travel to get fruit, to go pick grapes? Is it worth two hour drive to go to Vinevale or to Eden Valley? Sometimes it is, you know? So, I mean, if you look at guys in California that are driving down, I remember Hardy Wallace talking about how many kilometers he puts on in a different in vintages, like 20,000, you know, 20,000 miles, like just driving all over five, six hours down to Mendocino, down central coast, looking in, and on the prowl for, um, for cool, cool vineyards and interesting stuff. So, yeah, so the, the boundaries have broken here as well. I think that's kind of interesting. And people are getting fruit, as you know, as far away as the Riverland now, which historically was the, the engine room of Australian wine. And it was very rare 10 years ago that you would ever put the Riverland as a GI on your wine labels. It would just, it was be South Australia, you know, and now it's quite common that everybody is, because they're planting, replanting a lot of those vineyards there with, with grapes that are more appropriate to the climate and people are wanting those. They're wanting to buy Nero, less expensive than my Nero on our vineyard, which might be $4,000 a ton. You can get cheaper fruit in the Riverland and it doesn't have the same stigma that it once had, you know? So that's kind of cool. And so one of the um, things I was told when I was in McLaren Vale, that innovation is kind of a, a key factor in McLaren Vale. People or winemakers are not afraid to experiment and plant new stuff, grow new stuff. Um, what's your feeling about that? Yeah, you're, you're spot on. I th we were one of the first to, we were the first to put Nero Davila in here, really, with the new clone, this Matura One clone that had cleared quarantine back in the first year that I was here, like in 2008. And that was an amazingly exciting time to take Shiraz, remove Shiraz and graft over something brand new to the district. And then we have seen certainly uh, most wineries and most cellar doors, which are tasting rooms here, are called cellar doors, would try to have something different to show their 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 mailing list or their customers, you know. So, like I said, there's a lot of that now. I think that's become part and parcel of McLaren Vale. Is Shiraz is still the king by far, and then Cabernet, and then Grenache, and then but those sort of you know what we would call appropriate varietals, which has been because it's they're always called alternative. But those are most wineries and want to have that different offering for their customers. They'll probably still have Shiraz and other things, Grenache, but they want to start showing you know, the variety of options and choice. So consumers are becoming a lot more educated too and learning a lot more. So yeah, McLaren Vale is also a little bit less, a little bit, I mean, it's a lot less, I'd say conservative than the Barossa Valley. It's a lot more, um, because there's a few more expats and people that are not from here as well, where in the Barossa it becomes very, very generational and very difficult, I think, to to be really innovative there. I mean, there are certainly some people that are pushing the boundaries, but McLaren Vale, maybe just being on the ocean, it's a little bit more freewheeling. Maybe we feel like we can always run into the ocean if the natives get restless, I don't know. But it does feel like there is a bit more of uh, innovation here. People are still keeping their eye closely on the bread and butter varieties like Shiraz, because that's something that has, has weathered all the storms. It's, I mean, everything gets ripe here. So it's only, there was only like one year in 10 that you might struggle. So there's really, 
there's a lot of room. It's not like we're in a marginal region too, where you might be like, oh, are we going to get, is it going to, you know, everything's going to probably get ripe. It's a matter then of how ripe. And hopefully we can get the grapes off before a heat wave, which can also, you know, happen quite regularly here where you get some very warm days in a row that can really jack up sugars. And, you know, all of a sudden what was looking like a really copacetic vintage can change in a weekend, you know, and be, oh my God, okay, sugar levels, acids dropping, sugars hot flying, you know, we need to, we need to start thinking about picking. And then, you know, then you don't get the full development that you might get in a really lovely cool year, like 21 or 22. So the years like 2020, which was a were fires here, you know, so bushfires in Australia are, are as common in California, maybe not as devastating sometimes because California is a lot more population. But, you know, 2020, there were Kangaroo Island, which is one of the beautiful islands off the coast where we live, like three quarters of it burnt. So, yeah, so there are those years where it gets things get a little bit hot. And that's why it's good to have stuff in the ground that's a little bit more resilient you know, things that are kind of in some ways bulletproof, but still have good acid. And that's where the Southern Italian reds like Nero or those, you know, Portuguese, Tariga, or, you know, lots of different things. People are playing with Cypress, Cypriot varietals and trying to, you know, just explore as we think it's going to keep getting hotter. And as water keeps getting more and more, uh, you know, rare, we need to find varieties that are less thirsty and that are more tolerant of, of handling handling this sort of pressure. So that's exciting. And McLaren Vale has, I think, a lot of uh, a lot of attention on it, which is really good. So the idea is not to make the region itself have no identity and just be like a fruit bowl. So there's a huge focus on McLaren Vale for Grenache, which is well-deserved. And there's some great, great vineyards. And there's been a lot of work by winemakers in general, I think, to really focus on Grenache as the real hero grape of this region. Um, because we can make it in that Pinot Noir style, we can dial it back and make it, you know, so there's been a massive reaction to, to um, single site Grenache now rather than regional blends, trying to focus on it as if uh, like a Grand Cru vineyard in, in Burgundy or something. And so some of the families and some of the vineyard names are becoming very, very, very well known and very expensive. So that's kind of interesting as well. And then there's also the sort of, sort of the, you know, the, to try to stick with the identity of the region and not get too lost in just being a, a, um, a fruit basket of, of stuff. Yeah, you've just answered the question I was going to ask, which was Grenache. Um, how would you distinguish in a blind tasting McLaren Vale Grenache from other regions? Right away, you've got to find out the picking and the sort of ethos of the winery. Uh, and I think more now than ever, there's two styles. There's this sort of light, bright, fresh, juby nouveau styles, which are kind of really crisp. And then there's some that are darker and more alcoholic and a little bit more boozy, which might be more of a more traditional winery that sort of, they like that style. I mean, most of the Grenache that was planted and has stood the test of time in McLaren Vale was originally planted for fortified wine. So historically, it's one of these grapes that really quickly accelerates alcohol levels sky fast. And they're wonderful wines for, for port and tawny ports. And so in the way that Zinfandel was kind of white Zinfandel saved the old Zinfandel vines of California, like the fortified industry saved a lot of the Grenache vineyards, uh, not all of them, but so McLaren Vale now, I think, is trying, we are certainly have always trying to focus on Grenache as um, medium-bodied, pretty, perfumed, 
you know, transparent, uh, a certain lacy delicacy to it in the same way that you try to describe Pinot. Um, the, you know, the common denominator here is a lot of people talk about like Chateau Reyes, you know, which is obviously one of the icons of, of Chateau Neuf, which is sand or the wines of Domaine Longlore, Eric Pfefferling and Tavel, and those sort of real, really, really beautiful perfumed wines. And that's what I'm hunting for when I'm trying to make Grenache. We're trying to make it in that sort of ethereal, lighter, pretty, you know, detailed. McLaren Vale, I think at its best can do that, but wines with tannin and acid. And so all of those factors need to be there, I think, to complete the puzzle. So quite often straight Grenache can be too, a little bit confectionery. And I think so now we're seeing, I think, McLaren Vale, I wouldn't say there's a, there's a house style across the region, but more people are working with some whole bunch probably as well to build a bit of savoriness and some more tannin. And then, yeah, trying to pick it early enough where the alcohol's, you know, under 14. It's totally feasible. And these a lot of different cool vineyards, a lot of them that are planted like cool climate wise closer to the Adelaide Hills, Yangara Estate. Yangara's lovely high sands vineyard, which is gorgeous, biodynamically farmed uh, in the upper Bluet Springs, closer to the Adelaide Hills. So they'll ripen about a month later than you would if you had Grenache on the coast here. And those are really cool spots where you're seeing the full development of the grape variety and it's getting a longer hang time and it's not getting big and boozy. So a lot of people are hunting for Grenache from the sand. So that'll be a big defining quality. Are you getting your Grenache from Blue Spring sand or are you getting it from clay soils? And those wines will tend to be a bit more muscular. You, you can see it's not an easy answer. For me, I like to see it. We usually blend a little bit of Merved with our Grenache too, which I think is a nice combination. Something that you would see a lot in the Southern Rhone. Australia, a bit maybe like the US too, is kind of obsessed with single varietal wines, which is a shame because I think a lot of times if you do add a little bit of something else, it can make a much more complex wine. But but for the most part, Australia was famous for those GSM blends, which the Grenache Shiraz, Mataro, or Mervedra, whatever. Yeah, we initially started taking the Shiraz out for sure and just did the GM. And that was really pretty. And I think that was sort of where we still like to see those wines, you know, bright, pretty, but also good tannin and acid and sort of a little bit sort of, yeah, kind of quiet power. We're going from big style Shiraz, which is the which is the legacy of this region in South Australia is the powerhouse Shiraz. And that's what the world, the Chinese, the Europeans, most people associate because they don't know the ins and outs of current events and they don't really follow maybe outside of the, those people that are really into it, you know, that they would just, you know, average drinker would just associate McLaren Vale with yeah, big, big red wines. And so this is a real, really big sort of move to switch, to turn the whole dial to something else, you know? Yeah. And you've mentioned lots of different uh, Mediterranean varieties, which are clearly well suited to McLaren Vale. Talk about Sanso in McLaren Vale, because that's maybe definitely something that people would not associate with McLaren Vale, but it seems good, could be quite interesting. Yeah, we've got uh, that, again, it's that sort of um, Languedoc, Roussillon, Cinso, uh, Carignan, Morved. For me, I mean, outside of the Italian stuff like Nero, and obviously you can, there's a lot of other things that are being played with, a lot of whites as well, from Fiano to Vermentino to Greco to to all of that too. So there's, um, Cinso was a really good opportunity for us on a vineyard right next to ours. And we had a grower who approached me and said, hey, I hear you make some weird wine. 
And I said, thank you. Yeah, we do. And uh, he had three acres of Semillon that he couldn't sell. And Semillon is, we're not a Semillon region. Semillon is kind of associated with the Hunter Valley. Uh, very, in, in some ways, Australia gets very sectarian when it comes to things like grape varieties. Like Victoria will not drink Semillon just because they don't like Sydney. So Melbourne doesn't like Sydney. So, so but in Sydney, you know, obviously I'm speaking loosely here, but Sydney will uh, drink lots of Hunter Semillon. And then we have a Riesling Semillon blend. And it's been tricky because those people in Melbourne are like, oh, well, why, how dare you bastardize our beautiful Riesling with Semillon? And you're like, oh, it's a field blend. So it's, you know, I'm trying to, it's like a new language. So you're trying to say, why are you guys so upset with Semillon? So, so anyways, here um, the grower couldn't, couldn't move it. And so, um, so yeah, we said, let's, we'll graft, which is a great way to change directions in a vineyard, you know, as long as things are compatible between the, the cuttings and the root material. So we changed, we took off the Semillon and grafted Cinso and Carignan and Merved in a small little three acre block, really hot spot, nice cracking, dry soils, you know, lovely exposure, um, nowhere to hide. And uh, slowly the vineyard started taking hold and Carignan was the slowest to develop as we've heard and read about. It's a little bit slow getting its feet in vineyards, but since so right away, very sort of big, juicy bunches, thick skin, thick seed pack, lovely pale coppery color. So it also um, lends itself well to a lighter style red. Uh, and you can see we're in the bigger blends of the Southern Rhone and Languedoc that it's a, it offers some, a bit of a, a lightness to the heavier, darker um, Mataros, Carignan uh, sort of bruisers. Since so, maybe it's monodimensional in some capacity. When you look at it just on its own, you can you can certainly tweak Cinso to to be a little more complex. I'm using some whole bunch or even adding a little bit of Carignan or Merved to it. Um, Grenache. All these things are so well suited with each other. So Cinso has been really fun. So we had a, a blend of Mataro, Cinso, and Carignan, which was the focus of that vineyard, was uh, was to do a, like a Cote nothing's exorbitant, but just to do a really nice spicy red with those three grape varieties. Mareja would be the lead because I wanted that to be the star because I think that's the most noble of the three and the, and the wildest and the most kind of animal. Uh, Carignan, really gorgeous acid, good color. You can see why it's a huge blending wine. It's just... It's like the red wine, you know, personified. Uh, so light, pretty, cherry starburst, you know, totally different animal. But together, the three kind of create a really compelling blend. And so that was the idea was to do this MCC, which was a, like a gigandas, you know, or some nice, we could have a Sunday lunch with a leg of lamb and, you know, just delicious, right? Nothing too fussy, older barrels, nothing too, too geeky, just delicious, savory, <laughs> table wine. Um, and so at the same time, we obviously started looking at Cinso as a standalone and and destemmed it the first few years we started fermenting it just to kind of get an idea what the fruit tastes like and what the vineyard looks like. And and uh, the results were really promising right away, super juicy. We could pick it late in the season with that whole vineyard. We could pick it one of the last picks of the year, which gave me confidence to sort of I could do half the harvest essentially in the winery. We could clear the deck, reset, and then bring in the fruit from from Lennon Vineyard, which is where this is this vineyard is. And everything was, you know, would ripen a little bit at different times, but in general, all the fruit looked great. Could all pick it all on the same day, and then in the winery, I could divide it up. And so, yes, yeah, so we saw saw right away that since so we could be making wines at eleven, twelve percent, 
and they were delicious. You know, good acidity, uh, a bump up from rosé in style, but still really, you know, really interesting drinking. And here, uh, you know, there's trends of chilled reds cooling down, which is fantastic to see. Like that's actually a category now in warmer areas like Brisbane and Sydney. You know, there are sections on wine lists that say chilled reds. Like, I can't believe it. Like, I'm like, finally, you know, it's hot here. It's like drinking a, a hot wine in Singapore. You know, it's like it takes five seconds and the glass starts to warm up. So let's, so chilled reds has become a real, a real, you know, I remember drinking like Beaujolais. People it's like, that's the one red wine you put on ice. Remember that like in the 2006 and you're like, it's like Beaujolais Nouveau. Um, but yeah, Beaujolais, chill it. It's like that was everybody's kind of um, so now it's like, yes, and so lighter reds like that, you know, so it's showing a lot of promise in that sector. And also just because it performs well in the heat and it gives us something light and pretty. And so those are words we don't associate very often with 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 this wine region, you know, and that's that's a real benefit and it's tough. So who wouldn't want more of that? So and it blends well and it's just a. It's it's prolific. I think we have about one acre and maybe three tons, and that's judicious pruning and green harvesting. And it's the bunches are like the size of my head, and they're like heavy. They're full of juice and they're they're pulpy, so they're really easy to work with when you're doing punch downs in the winery. Which is by the end of harvest, you're usually pretty fried. You know, you've got like shoulders like Schwarzenegger because you're just doing punch downs. And so the Cinso is always like, oh, this is going to be it's juicy. It's a lot of, lot of, lot of, lot of sh water, sugar uh, in those grapes. And so it's really fun to work with. And so far, it seems really uh, resilient. And is the MCC wine a deliberate cricket reference? Or is that just a coincidence? It could have been MC squared. I mean, our labels are pretty much devised around abbreviations and shorthand. Um, so yeah, MCC. Turns out that they buy cheaper wines than ours at the cricket grounds. I thought for sure we'd have an in, but then they're like, no, do you get anything for $10? We're like, oh, no, maybe, maybe not. We're still hopeful, you know? And there's also the MCC in London, right? The Melbourne, and then there's the one in Melbourne. So we could get, we're trying to get in one of the ashes. The wines are in the UK now, so, you know, maybe there is a, there's a hope, but again, it's this sort of resistance to blends. And I think it's always, it's a little bit of a, it's a little bit of a, you know, it's a hand sell sometimes like if the wine had a cute name maybe like layer cake or something it'd fly out the door but you know it's just just yeah it's just people don't really trust you i don't think they trust us with blends they, they think we're trying to like pull a fast one on them like what's couldn't do it on its own you know you needed to add some other grapes to it but those are i mean again it's sort of early days because again consumers are the people that buy our wines are struggling because they don't know those grapes outside of mervedro but they also don't know Mervedro's Mataro. Like they don't like that. That throws a lot of drinkers off. Like, oh shit, really? It's got two names. And like, yeah, there's three actually, and probably more. But if you want to call it Monastrel, and there are people here doing that, you know, they're trying to make a Spanish Iberian style, and they're like, oh, it's Monastrel. And then we're calling it Mataro because I'm, you know, that's pretty much what Australians call it. But if you have a European inflection on your wines, and you're definitely looking at Merved, so. So Cinso and Carignan, Carignan's got a silent G in it, which also throws people off, you know, so they're, so you're playing with fire, you know, you can see why it takes a while sometimes to get people to kind of get on board with what you're doing. It takes a few years. And that's where, I mean, agriculture is painstakingly slow and very conservative. 
you know, we like to think very quickly. We can make a really fast decision and it'll, it, the impact will be felt quickly, but it, it can sometimes take years, and, and you know. Talking about names, you make Zibibo, which is Guts. Why did you choose to use that name? We, well, I mean, it's infinitely more saleable, I think, than Muscat. We had also liked the way it sits on our labels with the ZBO. Um, and, but honestly, the main reason we wanted to try it was we were doing Nier Davila and Amphora, and that was having a great sort of response for our, for our business, for our winery. It was very exciting. It was a new style to show red wines that hadn't been on new barrels and or, or any oak at all. So that was already kind of a little bit cutting edge for for McLaren Vale. I mean, I'd say it's very cutting edge. The first Nero Davila we made was completely canned. You know, here in Adelaide, nobody wanted it. They're like, what the, this is like, what's going on here? It tastes like rosemary and twigs, you know? So we had to take it to Melbourne and Sydney just to kind of like, hey guys, look at this is like, this is this is this thing and they're like oh this is really interesting this is like an this is the weirdest mclaren vale wine we've ever had and so for a while and we still are that kind of winery they're like you know people would just show it to their friends like guess where this is from and they're like i don't know Beaujolais? I'm like no it's from mclaren vale like wow weird so we had some success with that wine i think eventually we started the nero started hitting its straps and we, we it became more uh i guess more popular at least in wine in the wine community in and um, so we're looking for a white counterpoint and orange wines, long skin contact. A lot of those wines I tried had been disappointing and I wasn't, I wasn't sold on the idea of some of these concoctions that tasted like turkey juice or burning shoes or, you know, I was like, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I guess I could get into it with the right piece of cheese or something, but as a wine lover, I was finding it a little bit sort of, um, I wasn't enjoying it. So I was thinking about white wines that we could push into the orange wine category, but that also might be able to hold their shape and keep their aromatic sort of integrity. So when you did look at the wine, it recognize, you could recognize where the starting point was aromatically. And then in the mouth and the palate would be a totally different world, which is also really fun to have that bit of that Alice in Wonderland vibe of things aren't what they seem. So smelling um, muscat when it's been on skins for six months, it still smells kind of like elderflower and passion fruits and lychee and still has a lot of those musky overtones and a lot of those, that pungency that you get uh, from sweet muscat. But also it's now vinified dry. It's been on skins for six months. So when you press the skins, it, the wine develops tannin. It develops a totally different vibe in the mouth. It's much more angular. Um, it's dry, so there's no sugar and it sits up like, you know, like a craft beer. It sort of like feels like this weird amalgamation of beer and cider and wine. And so it's really lovely. And we just thought Zabibo was, was the Sicilian name for it. And we already had Nero, which was obviously Sicilian. So we're like, let's just do the one, two Sicilian punch. And Zabibo again was much more mysterious. It almost sounds like it could be a search engine or something, you know, I don't know. But it was more compelling than Muscat because I think that would have been very, very quickly people would have a bias about what to expect, you know. And those grapes are used for, I mean, they're called, it's called Muscat Gordo Blanco in the Riverland, which is probably the least sexy name for Muscat Gordo. You know, it's like fat guy in Spanish. So they're big grapes. You know, they're like, I would say, I often joke that they're the size of golf balls, but they're they're big grapes. And a lot of them are for fresh eating or for, for raisins, for God's sake. So 
Most of the wines that those are destined for are sweet box wines or the least sexy wines in the sort of wine world, you know, sparkling sweet wines. Um, Australians call box wines goon bags here. So a lot of kids would have probably grown up drinking that like in their grandmother's refrigerator, you know, as a sweet wine. And most of them do have bad memories of probably in the same way that we might have got drunk on White Zinfandel or something, you know, something sweet. So we've taken a, that grape and that was also really exciting and scary because that was from the Riverland. And that was, again, back in 2013, nobody was doing Riverland. Nobody was naming Riverland fruit. It was, and certainly that grape variety, the first year we got the fruit, it was free. So the grower had contacted me and said, hey, I hear you make weird wine. It seems to be my calling card. And uh, I was like, yeah. And he's like, well, here's, I got an idea. I've got this uh, Zabibo grapes growing here. Beautiful old, you know, 1950s vineyard story was interesting. It's all planted on the iron oxide soils out there, deep red soils. And I was like, okay, well, it's, so it's, it's Muscat Gordo Blanco. And he's like, yeah, I can't sell it. But if you pick it, and maybe if you make something interesting, we can talk price the next year. And I was like, fuck, yeah, I'll, I'll sign me up. I'll go check it out free fruit, you know, new winery. And so I drove out there in my little work ute and picked as much fruit as I could, you know, it was basically just had fruit in my pockets all over the inside of the cab. It was just, I was joking about this, you know, Cheech and Chong films where they pull, get pulled over and the marijuana smoke would roll out. This was like Zbibo would fall out the window and, you know, the cops like, be careful. You know, it's a long drive back to McLaren Vale. And uh, I went for it, you know, and we had a, we trialed it and it was, uh, again, it was, it was a little scary the first year, but that was really fun. That was really exciting to be like, wow, we're really on dangerous ground here because this is a grape that nobody wants, you know, really. Uh, how are we going to twist this one? And I think that kind of one-two punch of those two first Amphora wines were, was really invaluable for us as far as, as far as developing a bit of a vision and a bit of an ethos to what this winery was going to do, you know, which was really fun to be like, then felt like we were breaking new ground, even though it had been done for, you know, centuries in Georgia and other places. But in McLaren Vale, we were definitely the wild, weird dudes. So that was also fun. What's the next weird grape variety you're going to experiment with? Hmm. Yeah, I'm not so, you know, we've got a grape called Crystal growing on our vineyard, which is a Greek variety with wide plantings in China, which is a funny one. Uh, it's kind of came over after World War II. There were a lot of Greek and Italian, mostly Italian, but a lot of Greek um, men were recruited here after the war to sort of help Australia build its infrastructure. And with the culture came a lot of interesting food and wine grapes. And a lot of the boom probably in Australia started around the 40s and 50s with those immigrants that moved here and their footprints still on this region quite, quite deep. And one of these growers uh, brought this cuttings with him to make Uzo from his hometown of Zitza in Greece. And I met him, I wrote a blog about him back in 2007 when I was just first got here. One of the early blogging, probably like this type pad blog that I thought I'll set this up so I don't keep losing all my photos on cameras that keep getting destroyed. Remember this is before smartphones. So, so I had this blog where I could at least preserve photographs somehow and wrote about him. And he saw this picture of him on his daughter's laptop and thought he was famous. And I was like, I hate to tell you, it's really just my mom probably and your daughter. But anyways, he invited me to all these Greek naming festivals and all. And we had a great time and the Uzo would come out and I was like, what's the story? And he's like, it's from my hometown. And I was like, you know, light bulbs. 
because we just had Nero Davila, and I was like, wow, Nero, you know, this could be a Syrtico or Malaguzia or Mashafilera, one of the sexy white Greek grapes. And since he's like, I don't remember what it's called. And I'm like, damn, Chris, you know, remember shaking him. And he's like, stop shaking me. It's not helping. So I'm like, oh, all right, I'll send the cutting to France. And France, of course, has a huge DNA library, and it came back as Crystal, the Y. And I was like, oh, kind of deflated. But I was like, maybe that's easier, really, than having a long name. And so, so we've been making just a sparkling pet net with it, you know, having a bit of fun. It's it's one of the parents is semi-on, the other one is is not, not identified yet. So it's a bit of a latchkey kid. Um, and again, it's tough. And it makes a fun kind of frothy pet net. And we used to joke, would Louis Roeder ever hear about it? And, you know, and sure enough, like a month ago, we got a cease and desist letter from a Sydney law firm saying, hey, you know, it's really close to Cristal. And we're like, yeah, not really. It's actually, you know, the name of the grape. And, you know, and so fortunately, they kind of went away for the moment. But, you know, champagne houses can get very litigious. It's a $35 wine. It's, you know, it's cloudy. It's no sulfur. So it's not exactly going to compete with them. But that's fun. I, you know, I think we're, I'm really focusing on doing, really working with grapes that I, I, I love Chenin Blanc. I love Cabernet Franc. I like um, Grenache a lot. I like to also deal with the grapes that I really have a real affinity and an affection for as a wine lover. Um, that we can excel at here too. Like I'm never probably, I'm never going to make Pinot. I don't ever want to make Nebbiolo or Pinot. I really don't want to try to make everything. I'd prefer a little bit of mystery, you know, to be out there. I mean, we're not doing, you know, like, um, you know, what's the uh, Domaine de la Cote, you know, like I'm not trying to recreate Burgundy, which is obviously very hard to do um, or wines of that ilk. So, but Chenin Blanc and Cab Franc are really beautiful and fascinating for me. Uh, we've got Chenin Blanc planted in a beautiful sandy vineyard in Blue Springs, which, you know, just it's dynamite, but it's just so cool because it drinks like you're on the ocean and it's a different style than Vouvray or Sauvignon, as you'd expect, you know, you'd expect these wines to taste different and they do, especially when they're made, you know, with a little bit more TLC and less, you know, we're not putting them in the new barrels or they're fermenting wild and older oak and it's, they build texture and they're really salty and quite, you know, quite delicious, um, that's where we're really kind of trying to narrow it down to, I think, what we can do really well um, rather than just playing with all the sort of, you know, all the weird and wonderful stuff. I think that's also important because it's it also allows me to have conversations with other winemakers that I admire. And, you know, the discussion about our Shiraz or our Cabernet Sauvignon, which we grow, you know, it's lovely to show the world that we can also play in that sort of arena as well, you know, that we could match up to Northern Coast California Cabernet or our Shiraz is as interesting as Cornos, you know, and I want to have that part of the program too, rather than just being, you know, the, the mad scientist. There's room for both here, which is also really compelling to be able to, can, you can do both, I think, pretty well. Yeah, that's the impression I got when I visited um, Adelaide and McLaren Vale, that there is the traditional, but there's also the experimental, and they often overlap. They're not mutually exclusive. Yeah, I mean, it is a commercial, I mean, it's a business, so it's commercial. So you need to be able to stay in business, and you can't, you know, you do need to sort of deliver the goods. And that's that's part of it. That's part of the fun, too, is getting those wines correct to your palate. They should still stand out, maybe, and show 
all of my wines, I think, through a lineup. If you were to visit the winery, which you know people do all the time, if we taste, which we usually taste pretty deep, there's the indigenous yeast that works in this winery, which has a thread through all the wines, and it gives the wines a nice kind of Campari, almost Amaro, orange peel vibe to it. And that's really fun to see that. Um, so I think our wines still stand out next to our neighbors, which is good too. You know, we're probably picking a little earlier so the wines can have a touch of a sweet and sour appetizing quality to them. So they're a little bit more mouthwatering, but still ripe, but not, you know, egregious. And that's also something that's been really kind of fun to explore too, is picking dates and, and how that's changed here over the generations too of, you know, the old timers would be like, oh, you don't pick Cabernet before March ever. Like, don't. And they're like, we just picked ours in Valentine's Day. So each year you get a different set of scenarios. And then, you know, for us, we're much more happy to err on the earlier side. So a lot of the the way I think that our wines have been set up too was in the sort of the natural wine debate, which has gone deep and far in Australia. But working with lo-fi, low-intervention wines where you're not, where your vineyards are organic, first of all, where you're actually paying and working hard to certify your vineyards to be organic or biodynamic at a minimum. And then in the winery, you're not making, you know, you're not making additions to the wine outside of a modicum of sulfur. Um, they're not adding acid. We're not doing any sort of, you know, hardcore organic chemistry. The wines are really, we're trying our hundred percent best to get them right in without any sort of manipulation. Uh, but thank you for joining me. Uh, it's been a great overview of McLaren Vale. It's clearly a lot to talk about. They're quite an exciting region, lots of history, but also lots of innovation and moving forward too, and lots of different grape varieties. So it's going to be fascinating to see how McLaren Vale goes in the future and um, how people receive those wines, because I do think many of them, including yours, are absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much, Matthew. It's been fun to talk to you. I know it's a bit like pull the string and, and let them go. So hopefully yeah, we got some, let's cover some ground for your listeners as well. But uh, yeah, if anybody wants to follow up, we're pretty easy to find on Instagram and, and, and feel free to send me emails or whatever. I'm quite happy to, to talk further and in more detail about what's going on here because we obviously love it. Mm-hmm.